The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. We're going to be covering a topic that we've covered before, but with an interesting twist. We've talked about fracking before. We've talked about fracking for oil, fracking for natural gas, um, but we've never heard the industry side of the story. And today, I'm so pleased that we have Karen Moreau, who's the executive director of the New York State Petroleum Council, on with us. And she's going to talk about hydraulic fracturing from an industry perspective. We're going to talk about some of the risks involved and what the industry is doing to, to to address those risks and address our concerns. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Karen. I'm glad you could join us. I'm glad to be here, Jill. You know, there's been a lot of press coverage on protests against fracking, and I think many of the concerns that I have heard, at least expressed, revolve around the chemicals that are used in the water that's, you know, pushed through the pipes at high pressure to fracture the shale rock formations, and people are concerned about whether or not those chemicals could end up in our groundwater. What can you tell us about how the oil and gas industry is addressing those concerns? Thanks, Jill. I'm glad to have the chance to talk about this. Hydraulic fracturing, first of all, has been around since the late 40s. The process for fracking hard shale uh, to derive oil and gas, that's been tested for many, many years. Um, The thing that's a little bit newer is we've combined it with horizontal drilling. We're drilling at, at significant depths. Um, but the uh, technology has advanced us to the point where we're able to pinpoint where the resources are to actually get to the resource and make shale plays that in the past were not reachable reachable today. So point number one is we've been fracking for a long time in this country. Over a million wells have been hydraulically fractured or fracked without a single incident of groundwater contamination due to the fracking process. This has been confirmed by regulators across the country. The state regulators are very involved in states where this is happening. And then the federal level with EPA, Obama's former administrator, Lisa Jackson, has testified to this point. There's never been a single documented case of contamination from hydraulic fracking. Now, chemicals. In the fracking process, in order to break open this hard rock, and this is happening at a depth over a mile below the ground, in most cases, at least four to 5,000 feet below any water table or any source of groundwater. When they fracture rock, what they do is they drive down after the well is constructed, and the well is constructed with several layers of steel and cement, and this middle pipe that is the production casing is where the fracking process takes place. So you have about 11,000 plus feet of pipe that they drive a combination of water and sand at high pressure 
down through this pipe. The con a constitution of this mixture is 99.5% water and sand and about 0.5% chemical. Chemical additives that are needed to reduce the friction, reduce uh, pressure, and create, um, reduce any scale that could build up on the pipes. Typically, most of our companies, and I represent over 500 companies in the oil and gas industry, today's companies are using about three different chemical additives in this process in fairly dilute concentrations in order to make this work. The other thing the public needs to know is that across the country there's a website called fracfocus.org. It's run by the Groundwater Council of the United States where if you are in an area where there is drilling and fracking, you can go and you can actually identify by number. There's a sign that indicates the well. You can identify by number on a website that well, and you can find out what, what the company is using in the way of chemicals. So disclosure, that's something the public was concerned about. That's happening. I'm in New York State. We're not uh, doing high-volume hydraulic fracturing yet. We've been under moratorium as the state DEC studies this. And one of the things that's going to be part of their regulations is mandatory disclosure of any chemicals. Will they also um, do sort of baseline testing of the groundwater beforehand and then uh, do some testing, you know, periodically after the drilling takes place if it, if it does uh, happen um, so that there can be sort of baseline data and then ongoing tests to ensure that those chemicals aren't ending up in the groundwater? That's a great question, Jill, Jill and that's absolutely um, going to happen, and it should happen. It actually protect, protects the homeowner and it protects the company. Um, throughout New York State, where I'm from, and I'm from upstate New York, I'm actually from a farm. I grew up on a farm and have my own farm. Um, there are many water wells in rural New York that are shallow. Mm -hmm. that are not, there are some that are not well constructed. I'm not talking about municipal water supplies now. That's a completely different thing. But in the areas where most of the drilling would take place in the southern tier region of, the, of New York, you're looking at private water wells. It's helpful to the company and to the homeowner that wells within a certain distance of the well where the well would be, the gas well would be drilled, get tested ahead of time to see what is in those, in their water. Mm -hmm. um, some people, for example, a study just came out in New York, 15% of the water wells uh, in the area where we would see development, 15% already contain uh, certain contaminants, including uh, naturally occurring methane. Naturally occurring methane, that's the scene that a lot of people are aware of in the movie Gasland where they could light the faucet on fire. Right. A lot of people have seen that on YouTube as yeah. well. And so people look at that and go, oh, my gosh. But the point is that that already exists in many uh, wells right now without any fracking or drilling anywhere near the area. It's important that companies know what the water wells of the area are like, where they're going to be drilling, because they can address any issues up front with respect to, you know, distances and other things to protect the homeowner and also protect the company from any, any problems. We don't want problems. It's not in our best interest for there to be uh, any difficulties with homeowners and, you know, anyone's uh, water supply. So we want to make sure we know what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. You know, on the subject of water, um, a lot of people are also concerned because uh, fracking is a pretty water-intensive, uh, you know, operation. And 
because there's so much water involved and because there are chemicals um, diluted within that water to to break open the shale formations, um, you know, especially after last summer when so many agricultural areas were experiencing record-breaking drought, a lot of people are concerned that diverting some of the water supply to fracking could put that water supply in competition with other water uses like agriculture, drinking, you know, what have you. Um, And so once the, the water is extracted from the fracking pipes and the gas is flowing, can the chemicals that have been placed in the water be cleaned out some way so that the water can be used again? Or is that water... Um, you know, lost to us in terms of a fresh water supply? Well, the water that's used in fracking um, in most most oil and gas companies in the Northeast where I'm most familiar, Pennsylvania, for example, right across the border from New York is, is one of the states leading in drilling activity right now. Um, the, most companies are recycling their water. And what I mean by that is any wastewater that comes uh, is is uh, taken back up, say, out of the well bore in the fracking process or just water in general that's used on site. When when you're drilling, you do use some water and mud to uh, make the process less, um, to reduce friction. All of that is being recycled. And in some cases, it's actually recycled right on the drilling site. Uh, and in other cases, it's recycled from in a recycling center that's very closely located to several wells that are being developed. And what this means is we are, we're using less water. Um, the water that is recycled is then used on the next fracking operation. Um, and then what's left at the end of the day after this filtration and recycling typically is a small brick-like, uh, like a block, a small block of whatever solids there are. And that it's mostly salt. Um, because when you are drilling at depths of over a mile under the ground in some of these shale formations, what you're coming back, what's coming back up with water is salt. And, you know, there's some mild ke- chemicals that are left from the fracking process. A lot of it is absorbed in the shale, um, you know, at depths of over a mile. Um, so the water is being reused. Um, but just comparatively, you know, the usage of water in in fracking operations compared to other uses, agriculture, golf courses, um, you know, other uh, municipal electrical uh, generation needs, etc., is actually quite small on a, on a percentage basis. The other way that you address this is, and it's going to depend on region. For example, you talk about drought. And I was in Colorado this summer, and I was in the ranch country talking with a bunch of ranchers in the northeast corner. I met a number of ranchers from the southern part of the state who had been experiencing 10 years' worth of drought. Mm -hmm. That's something that people are concerned about. They should be. But what I'm getting at is oil and gas development in a state like Colorado has been going on for decades and decades, as is fracking. The way to deal with it is through monitoring water usage. And in Pennsylvania, again, I've traveled many, many times into Pennsylvania in the last few years. Before joining the industry, I was doing it on behalf of farmers because I come from a farm background. I was doing my own investigative research. The monitoring systems are already in place where a company pulls up with their water truck. There's a um, an automated system that the state has put in place that monitors how much water they take out of the rivers, 
and a company is allowed so much per day, and again, this is adjusted in the event that, you know, there's a, 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 a drought or anything like that that would require, you know, uh, the government, the regulator to be more concerned about water source and, and supply. These are all manageable issues, um, and we're a highly regulated industry, um, and it's something that we need to deal with as a nation because we have such an abundance of this resource, and it is resulting in uh, reduced emissions, carbon emissions. It's the cleanest fossil fuel when we talk about natural gas. We're the leading country now in 2013 in producing natural gas, and we're bringing down the cost of electricity across the nation because of this. So there are a lot of benefits, and if we manage this wisely, this can be done and for the benefit of many. Well, let me ask you this, back to the, the water, because, you know, what I have read is that some of the water that's pulled back up out of the, the pipes that, you know, you, that do the fracking, are, all that water is put into deep injection wells. But you're saying that there's recycling of the water going on. That, that doesn't jibe with what I've been reading about these deep injection wells. Can you speak to that issue? Yes. Um, depending on where you're located in the country, you may be using some of these deep injection wells to deposit any what we call um, wastewater that isn't, you know, after the recycling process. And also the, the solids that I'm talking about, those are placed in specialized um, landfills. The deep injection wells, and there have been, there are a number of them, for example, in Ohio. This is their location of those, and they are regulated by the EPA. The location is due to geology. And so, for example, where we are in New York State, we don't have any deep injection wells. So if we ever start high-volume hydraulic fracturing here, we're going to be addressing any wastewater um, by sending wastewater, whatever's left, again, we recycle a lot, whatever's left to, to perhaps states like Ohio to go into these deep injection wells. Pennsylvania is sending wastewater to those wells as well. Um, these deep injection wells are not, these are not, this is not related to hydraulic fracturing. These are not fracked wells. They are actually used by numerous industries, chemical industry, the food processing industry, other industries, including oil and gas, as a place to deposit and store industrial waste of almost any kind. Really? That, yes. That's news to me. That's kind of gross. So what happens <laughs> in those injection wells? I mean, so we're dumping what and where is it going and what happens to it down in these wells? Well, it, these wells are basically just used for, for storage. I mean, they're, they're, as I said, they have to be located in places where the geology is right. I mean, think about it. Across this country, we have to deal with waste. We deal with waste in the form of garbage every day. Tons of garbage come up from New York City to upstate New York, and they're trucked, and they're carried by rail, and they're put in piles and mm-hmm. buried. I mean, <laughs> we have a population of consumers, and when you consume a lot, you produce waste. Yeah. This is just one example. This is how industry deals with it. Wow. I, this is really eye-opening. I know that a lot of our guests on Go Green Radio are trying to deal with waste in many ways. In fact, um, you know, Covanta Energy is one of the, the companies that helps us bring this show live every week, and, you know, they are 
creating energy from waste. And so, uh, you know, as we try to move towards a, a less wasteful society, maybe these are some of the things we need to deal with. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but folks don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you just happen to be tuning in, we have two guests today. Our first guest uh, from the last segment was Karen Moreau. She's the Executive Director of the New York State Petroleum Council. And joining us now is Richard Heinberg. He's the author of several books that we've talked about on Go Green Radio before, uh, the most recent of which is called Snake Oil, How Fracking's False Promise of Plenty Imperils Our Future. We're talking about fracking, sometimes on Go Green Radio, you know, we, we talk about issues from one perspective or another. Today, we're going to be talking about hydraulic fracturing for natural gas from both the industry perspective and from the flip side, from the, hey, let's be cautious about this perspective. So, Richard, I'm so glad that you could join us now on Go Green Radio. I'd love to have you share your thoughts on what Karen was talking about in terms of the, the chemicals that are used in fracking and uh, the impacts to groundwater. What are your thoughts on what she shared about the industry's um, risk management around these issues? Right. Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that the industry is doing everything it can to uh, ensure that there are uh, minimized environmental impacts. But the industry has been claiming for some time that there are uh, no documented instances of groundwater pollution as a result of, of fracking. And this is a bit absurd. Um, just in July, the uh, 
Los Angeles Times published an investigative report uh, showing that the EPA uh, field officers in Texas had uncovered uh, significant evidence of uh, groundwater pollution as a result of uh, fracking, and the the uh, the higher ups at EPA had basically squelched this uh, this information, uh, not on the basis that they thought it was incorrect, but just because it was it was politically damaging. Uh, so, also, I think it's important to uh, look at the uh, uh, the practice of the industry of. Uh, requiring silence from people that they uh, who, who experience environmental or health harm from fracking and then uh, receive settlements. Uh, non-disclosure agreements are common within the industry. I'm looking at a, uh, a, a report on this in the Financial Post. Uh, uh, the title of the article is They've Bought Everyone's Silence, Drillers Paying Out Fracking Settlements to Landowners on One Condition, Keeping Quiet. Well, if if there are no environmental harms from fracking, why would non-disclosure agreements be so common? Uh, so th- there's there's that problem, and then uh, w- the uh, uh, discussion about wastewater recycling seemed to suggest that uh, all fracking wastewater is recycled, and actually that, that's simply not the case. Nationally, uh, less than 50% of uh, fracking wastewater is recycled. Uh, and there's, there's no way that this water can be uh, reintroduced to uh, the, the, the hydrological cycle uh, to groundwater or to municipal water supplies after it's used for fracking because it's, it's often radioactive. It, in, when it's deep underground, a mile underground, it, it uh, tends to pick up radionuclides that can't be removed by uh, municipal water treatment plants. So the only thing to do with it is to, uh, as as Karen was saying, uh, inject it deep underground, and uh, and then that brings up the problem of induced earthquakes. Uh, there have been uh, many reports in, in, for example, Oklahoma uh, over the past months of earthquakes up to five point on the on the Richter scale. Uh, Oklahoma normally is not a seismically active region at all, mm-hmm. but they've uh, they've experienced swarms of small earthquakes as a result of uh, uh, wastewater injection. Uh, so all of all of these points that were discussed in in the first part of the show are actually uh, highly controversial, and, uh, and I think it's important, important to, uh, to understand that. Karen, I'll give you a chance. Would you like to respond to, to Richard's comments? Well, it's always you know, challenging in these kind of discussions because I don't have anything in front of me with respect to his citations. But let me just say this to your listeners. If this was such a serious problem as I think Richard is alluding to, And don't you think that across this nation with the media that we have 24-7, and and frankly, it's not as if the media is necessarily friendly towards our industry, Um, you would be hearing 24-7 horror stories about, you know, the uh, problems with fracking, problems with energy development, and you don't hear them. This has been going on every day for decades and decades and decades of kind of development. This is not new. Fracking isn't new. And 
is every is, is what Richard's saying is that the, the head of the EPA under President Obama and President Obama himself is making this up somehow to be friends with the oil companies? I mean, we're looking at five years of delay on Keystone XL. Um, it's in the president's hands. He hasn't approved it. I don't think that painting this as some sort of conspiracy is necessarily helpful uh, to the public. And I think that it's important for people to recognize that this is a highly regulated industry. When you talk about non-disclosure agreements between companies and individuals, there are going to be many reasons for non-disclosure agreements, not just in cases involving the oil companies, but across the board in lawsuits and litigation. You think a, a rural neighbor doesn't talk to their neighbor if they've got a problem? I mean, if a company wants to develop in a rural area and they are creating problems, that spreads like wildfire, disclosure or non-disclosure agreements notwithstanding. So I think it's important for people that are energy and environmentally conscious to look at ways that we can manage this great opportunity in this country that will make us um, be able to deliver low-cost energy to so many people. That's a benefit. When you have mm -hmm. revenues going into the government and they can now fix infrastructure like municipal water systems and sewer systems, which are polluting our rivers, that's positive. So I think we have to look at it from all different approaches. There's always going to be risk-benefit analysis when you're looking at any form of industrial energy development. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I have to say... Um, I think it is in the industry's best interest to do things as safely and as transparently as possible. But in all fairness, the fracking that's been going on since the 40s um, is a little bit different than what we're talking about now. Isn't that true, Karen? I mean, we're, ta we're talking well, about going deeper. Well, we're talking about going, you know, with different chemicals. Isn't it slightly well, different than what's been going on paint, all these years? To try to paint a visual picture. And this is what's challenging, too, when you're trying to explain technology without something that you can show people, either physically or visually. The difference is we have deeper wells. Mm -hmm. That's the main difference. We're still using the same kind of technology for fracking, but because you have deeper wells, you're going to use more water and you're going to use more chemicals overall. The concentration of chemicals is going to be the same as it's always been, but because the well bore is deeper, that's the difference. That's, mm -hmm. that's the only real difference in what we're doing today. And mm -hmm. Richard made a point about some uh, radioactive materials come back up in the flowback. These are all tested. Regulators in the states test anything that's coming up on site out of wells. And if there's a level of radioactivity that is of concern, that would be transported to the proper place. Fracking wastewater does not go into municipal water supplies or municipal water treatment systems in Pennsylvania today and certainly would not in New York where I am unless a, uh, a municipal water treatment system was designed to deal with this particular kind of waste. So that's not happening. The, these injection wells, they've been used for, for decades and they work. So let me ask you this, Karen. So if, if some of this wastewater, um, and it kind of pains me to think of any water as waste only because, you know, I live in California and we're pretty dry here. But, um, so if this wastewater 
that cannot be reused, cannot be sent through municipal water supplies is then put into injection wells. Does that mean that that water is lost to us forever in terms of our water cycle? Or is there ever a chance of recapturing that water to put it back into our, you know, our Earth's water system? I honestly can't answer that question just because I'm not, that's just not an area where I have a tremendous amount of expertise. Uh-huh. Um, but I will say, and again, I come from a farm background, so I try to look at things in a very practical way because that's what we always had to do growing sure. up. You know, we had to deal with conditions in nature, in our environment. We had to manage it wisely in order to be productive and to keep our farm going. My point is this. We in our we use water across this nation for all kinds of things. Um, where that water all, always goes and where it comes back, you know, no one can say with all certainty. And the fact of the matter is, because we want quality of life, because we want indoor plumbing, because we want irrigation and we want green lawns and we want to produce more crops, we use more water. So we make choices every day that mean we're going to use water and some of it may be wasted. I'm a big proponent of conservation. I think when you combine conservation with developing your energy sources wisely and and providing quality of life for people, it means better things for everyone. Well, you've given us a lot to think about, Karen. I mean, as we begin to go forward into the 21st century and, you know, conditions being what they are, we realize we are in a resource-constricted world. You know, there's only so much of everything to go around, particularly with natural resources. We are going to have to make some very smart choices about what our priorities are for things like water, particularly when there isn't enough for everything and for every application in our society. And we are going to have to make some smart choices um, and and figure out whether or not we can afford to waste uh, water uh, in a many, many, many different applications. So yeah, I think um, you've given us a lot of food for thought. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but don't go away, folks. We've got a lot more Go Green Radio right after this. So uh, we'll be right back after this commercial break. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. 
A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our topic today is hydraulic fracturing, or better known in the mainstream media as fracking, and particularly for natural gas. Um, as many of you know, I am kind of a news junkie, and I have about 25 news apps on my smartphone, and I check everything from Bloomberg to Reuters to AP. I even get a little crazy, and I go with, you know, some of the entertainment news. But this week, uh, in checking the Bloomberg News app, which I love, especially their sustainability segment, um, I saw an article uh, about the Ukraine signing a deal with Russia that included locking in a lower price for natural gas than what Russia would normally charge, European countries. And I know that Russia, about this time last year, also made some deals with China, um, and they are selling them discounted natural gas. There seems to be, at least for, for Russia, there's a lot of geopolitical clout that comes with being able to make these kinds of energy deals in a world where, you know, countries are looking to a number of different ways to meet their energy needs. And natural gas is a less carbon emitting fossil fuel than coal or oil. Um, I'm going to ask you this, Karen. Do you foresee a time when fracking would allow the U.S. to become a major exporter of natural gas and reap some of the same geopolitical benefits that Russia has been enjoying lately? Well, I would hope so, and I think that we are on course for that. I mean, we're already the number one producer in 2013 of natural gas in the world. We're beating Russia there. Um, But the production projections are just phenomenal for um, developing our resources here in this country and producing more gas. The, uh, for example, not far from where I am, in northeast Pennsylvania, I was just on a drilling site down there with Cabot Oil and Gas last week, and Cabot just announced that one of their, from a single well site that has 10 wells on one site that's less than an acre when it's done and over with, by the way, they're producing enough gas in 30 days to power the entire city of Philadelphia with natural with heat for 30 days. I mean, that is just an example of the production numbers that are coming out of the Marcellus Shale alone. And we have shale plays all over the country. The shale plays are also all over the world. You know, you talk about Russia. The other side of the Russian... Uh, commerce, if you want to put it that way, is the fact that it also oppresses countries if they don't go along with what Russia wants. And because Russia has historically been providing so many nations in Europe and elsewhere with their source of heat, all they have to do is turn off the valve if a, company gets, if a country gets out of line. And they've done this. They did it with Poland. 
But what's exciting about the technologies today is the technologies that have been developed in the United States can be used abroad to develop resources in Poland, the, in Israel, in England, all over, the, uh, of, all over the world. On top of that, because of private property rights in the United States, the fact that our minerals in this country are owned by private individuals as opposed to the rest of the world, which is those mineral rights are owned by government. That's the reason we are leading in this. It's because with private mineral right ownership, our uh, landowners, our rural people in particular, they want to develop their mineral rights. They work with the companies to do this. That's why our production numbers are so high. That's why we should be exporting gas, because we're going to have so much of it. Well, here's the thing that concerns me, and Richard, I'll let you speak to this, and then mm-hmm. Karen, you can you can certainly take some time on this. My concern is one of the things that has made um, natural gas such a big boom. And we even see this on television commercials about you know uh, natural gas, and it's a domestic resource. You know, we've had a boom in manufacturing because of cheap electricity, and a lot of that was able to be accomplished because we were switching from coal, which wouldn't allow utilities and manufacturers to necessarily meet clean air standards um, and produce cheap electricity while still meeting those standards. Natural gas would allow that, but only if natural gas prices remain low. When natural gas prices were very high, two, three years ago, that wasn't economically feasible to create enough cheap electricity to run manufacturing to, you know, for utilities to switch their, you know, power generation over to natural gas. And my concern is that if we become uh, an exporter to European countries or, or, you know, other countries who are willing to pay more than we're paying right now in the United States for these low, cheap natural gas prices, that all the benefits that we've been seeing uh, on the home front in terms of, you know, manufacturers being able to come back because utility bills are lower and utilities using natural gas, you know, for meeting their, you know, carbon uh, standards and, and portfolios of cleaner energy. It concerns me a little bit that U.S. natural gas would be exported if that drove the price up domestically. Richard, what are your thoughts on that concern? Yes. Well, of course it's going to drive the price up. That's the purpose of the exercise. Uh, natural gas prices have been driven down as a result of, of the glut of, of rapid production of shale gas. Uh, they were close to $2, actually even under $2, a thousand cubic feet for a while. Now they're back up to about $4.25. But the the producers in many cases are still losing money on production uh, because it's actually expensive to produce uh, shale gas. It's uh, and we have Lee Raymond's word for that, the CEO of, of Exxon Mobil, who said famously that we're losing our shirts on shale gas at these prices. Um, I have to I have to challenge this uh, uh, the the assumptions about abundance of shale gas because we've done. Uh, a, a landmark study at Post Carbon Institute, uh, where we looked at uh, over 60,000 currently producing uh, shale gas and uh, tight oil wells, uh, and this is the most extensive study that has been done to date. We looked at uh, geographical location of the wells, the initial production rates, the production rates over time. 
what we found is that in each of the plays, there are core areas where production is prolific um, and profitable, but they are very small. The uh, number of, of drilling locations within the sweet spots or the core areas is limited. Those are being drilled out rapidly. When we look at the shale gas plays, all of them are already declining in production with the single exception of the Marcellus. This is a short-term bubble. It's not something that we can project out uh, decades and decades into the future. Uh, U.S. natural gas production will be in decline before the end of this decade, and declines will be steep because individual shale gas wells decline very rapidly in production, sometimes as much as 80 or 90 percent in the first year. That means the industry has to drill and drill and drill just to keep production steady, and this is particularly true as the uh, as the core areas are drilled out and producers have to move out into peripheral areas. So we, the only uh, the only reason the industry is looking to export gas is to get the price up so that they can make a profit over the short term. Over the longer term, there's not going to be enough gas to export. Well, let me get to you, Karen. There's two issues here uh, that Richard brought up, and, and part of it is the production. You know, how long can we produce gas at the rates that are projected? Um, but also this issue of exporting, driving the prices up, and hence undercutting some of the benefits to American consumers. What are your thoughts on that, Karen? Well, Richard's, Richard's correct about the pricing of natural gas. Uh, in the last few years, it was at a low of I think two, uh, you know, maybe a year or so ago. Now it's up to four, but it was I think going back maybe four years ago, it was at a thir- eleven. I mean, right. so what, we, what you've seen is a significant decrease in the price of natural gas. That's being reflected in your utility bills. Just last year alone. The average savings in an American household was over $1,200, and this was due in their utilities due to conversion of natural of, of electric firing power plants to natural gas. Right, so and how prices, long can that last, but, Karen? I mean, if we start to export natural gas, how long will will natural gas prices stay that low? Well, a couple things. First of all, the CEO of Exxon is Rex Tillerson, and Rex Tillerson and his company, which is the largest oil and gas company in the world and one of the members of American Petroleum Institute, which I represent, um, they are predicting a 200-year supply of natural gas. With That's just with our existing technologies. And what, what's really but that, interesting... That, that and, forecast lacks credibility. Well, how, I, I mean, this is where we, don't, we just are not going to agree, simply not going to agree. And the reason why export is good for the world, not just for the bottom line of companies. And frankly, we are a free market society, and our companies do actually need to make money in order to get a return on significant private investment. I mean, the cost of a shale gas well, on average in the Marcellus, is 8 to $10 million per well. So, yes, we do want to return our investment. Yes, we do see our production numbers going up. We do see a long-term supply of natural gas in the country and in the northeast continent. Let's remember our neighbor to the north, Canada, who will tie into the pipelines that we're building. And we do want to export. And this is going to be a benefit to countries across the world. And also, and I'm really, you know, this is very significant, 
most of the, there is a, a good portion of the world population that has no electricity. I mean, 23% of the African continent has no electricity. And think about what that means to quality of life for people. You know, I represent companies that are in the business. Yes, it's private, and we are there to invest and get a return. But we're also in the business of providing quality of life to people through low-cost energy. As much as we support, you know, renewables and study of renewables, after 30 years of subsidy in this country, less than half of the percent of the uh, energy needs of this nation and abroad are met by renewables. It's simply a fact to meet the needs of our nation, to keep us competitive, and to help around the world providing quality of life, which then translates into freedom from oppression, it's important that we harvest our resources. Let me ask you this, Karen. So if you, let's say we stipulate there's 200 years of, of natural gas in America. If we start exporting that, well, then we don't have 200 years worth for our consumption. We have less than that because some of our gas will be going elsewhere. So based on the projections for exports that the industry is looking at, um, how much time do we really have for domestic gas well um, if we export it Joe I mean l- let me just let me just explain a little bit about what I'm saying I, I mentioned where the demand I was talking about other parts of the world where the demand for energy will be increasing this is based on outlooks that our companies do to determine where they want to invest and where demand is the demand in the United States actually has not been you know, increasing at the level uh, of what we see around the world. And this has a lot to do, it has to do with, and it's cyclical, it has to do with our economy. For in a recession, the demand goes down, for example. You know, a lot of the energy used in this country is used um, if if we're producing something, if you have a factory, if you're, uh, you know, providing electricity for industrial use, if the economy is down and we're not producing the demand for energy goes down. Um, but aside from that, I mean, it, we are constantly seeing cases of manufacturing firms leaving Europe today, for example, and coming back to this country. Um, chemical businesses from around the world coming back to this country, not just because of the low cost of energy, that's a big factor, but also because of the kinds of gas that we're producing. For example, in western Pennsylvania, they're producing what we call wet gas. And what wet gas means is that we have not only natural gas that can be used for heating for the residential consumer, but we have the byproducts of butane and ethane that are used in making plastics. And in that part of the world, big manufacturing firms are relocating because they are in the plastics industry, in the chemical industry. And in order to make that decision to come here, they had to project a certain level of cost of energy at least for the next five years in their business plan. And there are already people out there buying energy at certain rates to be used for that purpose. So, again, the idea of trying to uh, lock an entire industry into a certain price and thinking that we're somehow going to control that I think is just – it's not workable. 
Well, then what do you think, Karen? What will happen to all the utilities who've been saving consumers money on their uh, bills, their monthly bills, as you pointed out? And what will happen to the manufacturers who are using electricity and energy from natural gas with the idea that, hey, this is great, it's cheap? When the price goes up, what do you envision will happen? Well, the price is always going to fluctuate, again, depending on the economy. But what, what is happening already across the world is that other countries, like China, which is huge, has huge shale gas reserves. They're developing their shale gas. Mm -hmm. This is happening everywhere. We're not the only ones who are developing shale gas. Right. But I mean, just from the American point of view, I mean, a lot of our, not all of our listeners are Americans, but a lot of them are. And when we see TV ads for the oil and gas industry talking about natural gas, the promises that are being made are things like it will help reduce our dependence on foreign oil. It will create cheap, clean electricity at home. And so while I don't think any American would wish that people in other countries would go without electricity, when we're developing our resources here at home, we have an interest in keeping them at home for our benefit. If we can export it, but that doesn't impact the price we pay for our own uh, resources, that's fine. But I think there is some concern that if we begin to export this natural resource, that we may end up being hurt by the rising prices. So I'm just wondering how the industry will explain that to the American public after such an extensive uh, PR campaign talking about, you know, domestic supply and domestic benefits if that doesn't pan out a few years down the road. Well, it certainly is not a PR campaign that's based on anything other than what the fact is. The fact of the matter is we have tremendous resources in this country which are now reachable economically because of this improvements in technology. And we have a lot of natural gas and oil made possible because of that. We need to be able to sell it. We're selling it. We're meeting the demands here in the United States. And we need to be able to market it abroad in, within a global economy. You know, we have a global economy. Nobody, no one operates, no company, uh, most companies do not operate in a vacuum. And we've seen that now for the last 30 plus years. Um, you know, our, our economic, the way things work. The other thing people have to keep in mind is that we want to have exports. It helps our, reduce our trade deficit. It strengthens our dollar. I mean, this is a very complex discussion with respect to the economics of this entire issue. But the point well, is, we, we need to. We are private companies uh, that make significant investment in this nation and on a number of levels. And mm-hmm. we certainly have to be able to sell what we produce. Well, and I can see that, like, for instance, in manufacturing, um, and we talk about the trade deficit quite a bit, and and if we have American workers making products, we want to sell them overseas. That's the fruits of our labor. But when you're talking about a, a resource, energy, or, or water, or, uh, you know, lumber, whatever the natural resource happens to be, um, when we offload those to other countries, we lose it. Now, we may gain private 
profit, and that's, you know, the way that our global economy works. But I think there's increased concern on the part of many Americans when it comes to, um, you know, a, a finite resource, we know it won't last forever, um, uh, being sent offshore, you know, and, and that is something that some people get a little bit nervous about in the absence of, as you said, uh, renewable energy to replace it. Um, so Richard, you know, I'm sorry, I haven't brought you in for a while. What are your thoughts on what we've been discussing? Sure, yeah. Well, it, just you know, think of the language that we use when we speak about these resources. We say we're going to develop uh, our natural gas or oil resources. What we're really talking about is we're going to deplete our resources. That's what, that's exactly what we're doing. We're taking the stuff out of the ground, using it once and for all, and it's gone forever. Uh, if we were really concerned about future generations, we would be producing the stuff as slowly as is humanly possible and finding, and we would want to make sure the price is as high as possible so that, uh, you know, we would, we would use Use it as parsimoniously as we as as is humanly possible to make the stuff last as long as we could. Instead, what are we doing? We're we're digging the stuff out of the ground as fast as we can. Uh, we're burning it once and for all, uh, changing the climate as we're doing so, and we call that development. Uh, you know, I, I know that's that's the way the economic system currently works but if you just think about it from an ecological perspective or even from kind of some long-term sensible uh perspective it just doesn't make sense uh but that's what we do it's a bargain Karen, with the devil got- yeah, Karen, you've got kids. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about, you know, if you count on one hand the number of generations who will have cheap fossil fuels um, at their ready disposal, um, what are your thoughts about, you know, depleting our nation's supply of natural gas uh, in a certain you know, number of generations, some of which we may actually meet before, you know, before we depart this planet? You know, what are your thoughts about um, depleting what they may otherwise have access to if we conserved it. What do you think? I just think that we have become a a highly technological and industrial society. And we don't we don't live in huts, you know, we don't most of us don't burn, you know, a fire in a cave. Um we've become accustomed to a certain quality of life. We've become accustomed to uh education educational institutions, we become accustomed to the things that reflect a prosperous society. Low-cost energy is part of that. We don't, we don't enjoy that without low-cost energy. Agreed. Richard, Richard just said he wants it to cost more, that he wants our energy to cost more. I differ on that. I do have five children, and I think that the challenges they face with our economy, especially where I am in, in upstate New York, the challenges that they face are very significant, and I believe that developing our natural resources, whether it be oil or gas or even producing food, and that's where I come from originally, I mean from food production, I believe that doing more and producing more is a positive. I believe that leads to jobs for people, and the people that suffer the most from high cost of energy are the people that can least afford it. Our poor in our cities and elsewhere. 
food production is that's something renewable you know you can go out go back to the same plot of land and yeah you can deplete your soil but if you're a good farmer you find ways of renewing the soil but with fossil fuels you know this is a one time only uh, gift of nature and and we're depleting it once and for all as fast as we possibly can and we don't have any idea of what we're going to do when it's gone well, I think well, we have 200 years to figure it out. No, I, uh, but that's, that, again, that lacks credibility. It's, it, it, it's the 200-year figure is pure public relations. It has no relation oh, Richard, to reality we, whatsoever. Richard, we could talk offline. <laughs> well, I'd be Karen, happy let me, to. I'd be happy I, to. I, I, I would be happy to send you a copy of our study. I'd love to see it. Yeah. We'll make that happen. I okay. promise. I'll facilitate that. Karen, you know, here's the thing that I absolutely agree with you on. I think, you know, cheap energy does uh, spur the economy. And that's why I'm so concerned that natural gas prices are not going to stay cheap here in the U.S. Um, and and whether we have 200 years worth or not, I mean, it does bother me. I've got three kids um, that, that, you know, my – uh, my prodigy and my my posterity would not have uh, access to you know inexpensive electricity if we don't uh, make some quick changes to infinite uh, types of energy versus the finite energy that we're we're living off of now. But um, I also am concerned that natural gas prices will be going up, and hence our economy will suffer as a result. And though you know there are uh, corporate investments in the form of taxes that, you know, if they're profitable, they go back into the community and there are many benefits that we reap from that, but there are a lot of benefits that will evaporate if natural gas prices uh, go through the roof again as they were just uh, in short memory. So I, I think that's something we need to really think about, something we really need to address so that the benefits um, of this development of natural gas are spread throughout the country. One of our biggest um, criticisms of some of the oil producers countries in the Middle East is that their oil profits are not spread around the population um, and that they're in the hands of a few. And I would hate to see that happen in the United States. Thank you to Karen. Thank you to Richard for joining us on Go Green Radio. Um, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, everybody, have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.